0: Well, thank you for once again joining me in our study through the book of Genesis. I'm your host, Randy Duncan, and we are in episode number nine. And in this episode, we're going to complete chapter two. But before we begin, in case you did not get a chance to listen to the last episode, just a quick recap of what we covered. Last time, we began chapter two and discussed God's resting or ceasing his work of creation on the seventh day. We also discussed the creation of Adam, and that he was made from the dust of the earth, and that all the elements necessary to create a human are literally found in the dirt. But that there was also something more required, which was the breath of life from God. And then finally, we discussed the Garden of Eden. So look, there's a lot to cover this episode in order to wrap up this chapter, so I am just going to jump right in. So I want to read verses 10 through 14 and then just a couple of things I want to mention on those. So verse 10 begins, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. There's golden in their hills evidently. And the gold of that land is good. Bedillium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. Is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, I mentioned in the last episode that I would discuss at least one possible location for the Garden of Eden. And again, there's all sorts of speculation and debate about this. But verses 10 through 14 mention four rivers. The Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. Now... We're very familiar with the Tigris and the Euphrates. I mean, they're they're still active rivers today. We know exactly where they're located. Now, those two rivers, I think they have their sources within like 50 miles of each other in Turkey and travel through Syria and Iraq to the head of the Persian Gulf. But satellite imagery reveals the dry beds of two other rivers that once flowed into the Persian Gulf region. And if researchers are correct and the Persian Gulf area was mostly dry at that time... All four rivers would have come together in the southeastern part of what is now under the Persian Gulf. And so I would offer this area beneath the current Persian Gulf as at least a reasonable candidate for the location of Eden. Now I do want to mention one other thing about Eden. Some people believe that Eden was the state or kind of represented the conditions that existed all over the earth. In other words, earth was a paradise everywhere. In an earlier episode I mentioned that some people believe in the canopy theory and that this canopy of water covering the planet was what allowed for this paradise setting over uh, all of earth. But apart from the physics not allowing for this canopy of water to be hovering above the earth, there, there are a couple of clues in scripture that indicate this was not the case and that Eden was limited to one geographical location. Scripture tells us that Adam lived both inside and outside the garden. The Bible also teaches that God planted a garden in the east and then placed Adam there. And then finally, later on, we're going to see Cain banished to the land of Nod, which was where? East of Eden. So Eden appears to be a very specific place with specific conditions that did not exist over the entire planet. Verses 15 through 17 read, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now once again, notice that God placed Adam in the garden, which means that he was not created in the garden. You know, too, some people think that, look, if Adam and Eve hadn't blown it, You know, we'd all still be living in paradise, not having to go to work. You know, we'd just be laying around all day, playing Call of Duty on our Xbox or PlayStation, eating Little Debbies. But that's just simply not the case. I mean, first of all, every person since Adam and Eve has also blown it. And that includes you. That includes me. So don't go blaming Adam. Second, notice that scripture says that God placed him in the Garden of Eden to what? To work it. And to keep it. So even in the Garden of Eden, Adam had work to do. He had a job. He wasn't meant to just wander around aimlessly. Now, there are commentators who mention that this phrase, to take care of it, sort of entails guarding the garden against Satan's encroachment. As priest and guardian of the garden, Adam and Eve should have driven Satan out of the garden, but instead, he drives them out. And when you do a word study, there's definitely some merit to this view um, as the Hebrew verbs, you know, to work it and to take care of it, are more frequently associated with religious service and priestly functions. As I mentioned in the last episode, I think I, I'm going to wait to have a discussion of the tree of knowledge and good and evil until next chapter. Uh, but I will point out uh, one thing here. It seems like a lot of times many of us focus on the few things that God prohibits rather than the many things that he allows you know rather than enjoying all the things that we do have we seem to want to focus on the things that we don't have and here we see god telling adam that he could eat of every tree of the garden except one in other words everything here is for you and out of all i have provided just this one thing is prohibited and we're going to see in the next chapter that this one thing is what will be focused on now that phrase in the day you eat of it you will surely die the phrase uh, in the day is a way the Hebrew conveys our English word when so what's being communicated is when you eat of it you shall surely die but it does not suggest that the events described will take place within the next 24 hours in other words it doesn't mean look as soon as you eat of it you're gonna drop dead When it reads, you will surely die, it's referring to the eventual outcome of the behavior. In other words, the sentence has been passed. When you eat of it, you will be sentenced to death and therefore doomed to die. Death will be a certainty. Some people also believe that even though Adam and Eve did not immediately die physically, they immediately died spiritually. In other words, they were separated from God at that moment and that they would eventually die physically as well. The Etz Haim commentary explains it this way. You will have to live with the knowledge that one day you will die, which is a burden of awareness that no other creature bears. You know, and I think that's an interesting thought because the reality is it's only us humans that have the capacity to ponder our own mortality our own pending death, and then the possibility of life after death. Verses 18 through 20. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. First thing I want to point out here is it's interesting that so far as we've read up through creation, everything that God has pronounced has been pronounced as good. Verse 18 here is the first time that God calls or says something is not good. Loneliness is the first thing that God pointed out that was not good. But Adam was not alone, actually. I mean, he enjoyed a relationship with God. So what God is maybe acknowledging here is that even though God is essential, we also need the companionship of other people. Now, I'll come back to the word used here in verse 18 as a helper. But first, let me touch on one other thing. Remember, Genesis chapter 1 says that man and woman were created on day 6. So we're still reading about events that occurred on day 6. And there's quite a list of events that occur between the creation of Adam and the creation of Eve. And it's difficult to believe that all of these events occur on only one day. Meaning, again, that definition for day, the Hebrew word yom, may not mean a literal 24-hour period. So for example you know, God has Adam working and keeping the garden. I mean, how long do you suppose God had Adam doing that? Just a few hours? I mean, anyone that's worked and maintained a garden knows that that's probably not the case. I mean, even if you put miracle Grow on it, it's still going to take more than a few hours. Next, God has Adam name the animals. I mean, how long do you suppose that took? A couple more hours? i don't think so especially when you consider how many species he probably had to name and if we skip down to verse 23 when adam sees eve for the first time his response is at last bone of my bones flesh of my flesh in other words somebody like me but the english translation doesn't quite capture that full expression of adam here what he says when he sees eve is actually more emphatic The word in Hebrew is hapayam, which means at long last, you know, finally. And this expression doesn't seem to come from someone who's just been alone at work for this one day. I mean, this seems to come from someone who has been alone maybe for quite a while. The point being, again, is that all of this seems to point to the sixth day being a longer period of time than just a 24 hour period. So verses 21 through 23, but I wanna start with the second half of verse 20. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So let's talk about this word helper. You know, some skeptics and non-believers, they point to this verse and kind of try to argue and make the point that, that God is misogynistic. That God is prejudiced against women because you see here, look. The woman's just a sidekick just a little helper for Adam but that's completely wrong-headed and, and it really just betrays their lack of understanding about this verse that word translated as helper here is the Hebrew word Ezer, and it does mean help or aid but 80 times in the Old Testament the root for this word refers to military assistance uh, an ally someone who is essential uh, in, to assure victory so Eve is by no means just a trusty sidekick here. And we mentioned that God had Adam by himself for a while. I mean, how long, we're not sure. All we know is that his response was at long last. Now, why do you think God didn't create Adam and Eve at the same time? You know, we can speculate on maybe some of the reasons why. I don't think we ought to be too dogmatic about any of those reasons. But I do think one of the reasons may have been to teach Adam That he was unique in all of creation. I mean, Adam could appreciate all of creation. He could admire the beauty in all the heavens. He could enjoy working the garden, enjoy forming relationships with animals. But he would learn that he was unique from all of creation. He would come to understand that he was spiritual. That he was created with the breath of life from God and in the image of God. But that he had no one to share it with, no one that he could relate to on his own level. And so he would experience loneliness. And so when he sees Eve, he says, At long last, finally, God waits until Adam is prepared to appreciate the gift of woman. Someone who is his opposite, but his equal. Someone who would be his ally. Somebody he could relate to on his own level. You know, someone who would complete him. I mean, the Hebrew is clear here. Eve was Adam's equal. You know, I've sometimes wondered how long Adam was alone in this sense without Eve and what it must have been like for Adam the first time he saw it, the first time he laid eyes on her. And I think it probably is a little hard for us to imagine just how truly emotional that must have been for Adam. I mean, just think how emotional it's going to be. When we, just like Adam exclaimed, finally, at long last, when we get to be reunited with our loved ones in heaven who we have not seen in such a long time. And I really just think it's, that's hard to imagine. We can think about that. We can long for it. We can hope for it. But I don't know that we can truly get a sense of the emotion that we're going to feel when we get to see our loved ones in heaven. And I think what Adam saw in Eve may be just a glimpse of that. Verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Now, many of us are so familiar with this part of the story. You know, God takes a rib from Adam and he makes Eve. But there are some people who believe that's not necessarily exactly what we believe it to be. Meaning, some people believe that God didn't take a whole rib from Adam. That all he took was a sample, just a portion of a rib, sort of a biopsy of sorts. And that's what he took from Adam's side. Then he used that to create Eve. And the word translated here as rib is the Hebrew word selah, which means a part or a portion of the side of something. It's actually an architectural term, meaning the curved part of the side of something. So we don't know for certain whether it was a whole rib, portion of a rib, how large, how small it was, but most contemporary scholars agree that it does not necessarily mean rib, and maybe it should be translated as, and God took from one of Adam's sides, and then he closed the skin over it. And also, nothing in the text says that God used only that sample to create Eve, but it does imply that that portion taken from Adam at least played a significant role. I mean, we know from modern genetics that even a small portion of the tissue would have the needed human DNA blueprint. I mean, look, the reality is that God could have created Eve in any manner he wanted to. So, why this way? One interesting verse is found in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse 11 and 12, and it reads, In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. And this describes an interdependent and and an equal relationship. Matthew Henry wrote that woman is not made out of his head to top him or to have authority over him. He's not made out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved by him. Now to all of you men out there, I want to point out just one observation here. Notice that during creation week, God's creations grew progressively more and more complicated. In other words, each creation was sort of a a level above the prior creation. So, for example, we started with just the the structure, you know, the universe, the planets, stars and such. And then we moved uh, to form plant life. Then we went to birds and to sea creatures and then on to land mammals. And then finally we have Adam. But what is the culmination of God's creation? Woman. And guys, I'm just gonna leave that one there for you. One final uh, thought on this. Scripture tells us that Adam is a figure or a type of Christ. Paul tells us in Romans chapter five that Adam was a type of the one who was to come, and obviously he was referring to Christ. Now he's referring primarily to condemnation entering into the world through one man's sin, but that through one man's righteousness, justification and life are made available to all men. So sin and death enter through Adam. Forgiveness and life enter through Christ. But there are also some who see Adam being put to sleep, having Eve, his bride, being taken from his side as a figure or a foreshadowing of Christ. So think about it. Adam is put to sleep, which is a way the scripture often refers to those who have died. And then he suffers a wound in his side to pay for his bride. And then he is woken back up. Likewise, Christ died. He suffered a wound in his side to pay for his bride, the church, that's you and I, and then he's resurrected. And we'll wrap up chapter 2 here with verses 24 and 25. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That naked and not ashamed, or as we say here in East Tennessee, naked. Two primary thoughts on this. First, the traditional view here is that Adam and Eve had nothing to hide from each other. They had no shame, no guilt. They were securing themselves and they're securing one another. The alternate view suggests that this is just a description of childlike innocence and that they were just simply unaware of their sexuality and therefore. They saw no need for clothes. Now we'll discuss more in the next chapter regarding their potential level of innocence prior to the fall when we discuss the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So this will wrap up our study of chapter two. Next up, chapter three, which will see the introduction of Satan, the fall, banishment from the garden, and more. And I can almost guarantee you You will hear some thoughts in chapter 3 that you may have never heard before. So trust me, you do not want to miss chapter 3. As always, thank you for joining me. Please share this podcast with a friend, family member, church member, anybody you think that can benefit. And until next time, as Paul says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts and let the word of Christ dwell in you.